brief commercial. Today's sermon is brought to you by the generous support of Charles Mills and his wife, Ann Steiner. They had the winning bid last fall for picking a sermon topic, and I always include getting together for coffee or a meal. We had a lively breakfast conversation the other week. Ann and Charles had many concerns on their minds. The grotesque murder of high school students in Parkland, Florida, was still a fresh wound. So while they had already given me a sermon title and topic, soft bigotry, Charles jumped right in and said, let's talk about the issue of guns. (laughs) We indeed, indeed did talk about it, and I will save it for another Sunday. But exploring soft bigotry will influence our thinking about violence and weapons. And the two topics can inform each other. But our first task today is to examine soft bigotry. Yeah, no, bigotry, that's, that's a horrifying word. It means having an obstinate devotion to one's own prejudices. The word names an evil. Thinking less of a human being, thinking of them as subhuman, based on stereotype and ignorance. Soft bigotry was coined by speechwriter Michael Gerson. He was a policy advisor with the Heritage Foundation and wrote the phrase for then governor of Texas, George W. Bush. Adding the adjective soft doesn't reduce the notion of bigotry, but actually rather expands it. Soft bigotry is hidden bigotry or prejudice disguised as equal and fair. The full phrase Gerson wrote is the soft bigotry of low expectations. Hold on. The soft bigotry of low expectations. And it came up in a speech that Bush gave to the Latin Business Association on education in 1999. I was going to read you part of the speech, but it seems all you need to know is that he uses that phrase to talk about disadvantaged children and then ends the speech by suggesting schools be called failures and funds diverted to to parents and charter schools. And that's what soft bigotry is, that kind of misdirection. It's no surprise that Gerson mints the term for a speech about education entwined with cultural identity, (coughs) economics, and race because it entails the inevitable intersection of real social problems and that sleight of hand of discrimination and cruelty. So returning to our breakfast conversation, Charles describes what soft bigotry means to him. And what he wants us to look at today are the countless times someone is surprised when a woman or a Hispanic, or an Asian, or a Latin, or a black person displays intelligence and competence. He says, I 
think he's right on this, that the level of surprise at being corrected is an indication of the depth of the soft or hidden bigotry, racism, and sexism. For example, Anne describes her first engineering job where all the men have formal offices while the women are lumped together at desks in the bullpen. The men would be surprised at the time that the office arrangement should be any different. Charles points out soft bigotry is at work when someone prefaces a story with, I'm not a racist, I believe all genders are equal. Each lead-in is the soft part until the next word is, but... Then what follows is racist or sexist or culturally denigrating. He explains this form of speech is often prejudice you carry with you that you don't know you have. Unwitting is the key to soft bigotry. It's something we're not aware of because it comes from the majority culture, from our surroundings, from what is oh so familiar. One person who has experienced, read, researched, and written about this most thoroughly is who you heard earlier, Dr. Daryl Wing Sue. He really is one of the most foremost experts on soft bigotry. And I have, I have deep admiration for him and the integrity of his experience and research. Because as a person born in the United States, he looks Chinese. And he has his own everyday stories of soft bigotry. He writes about these and tells them in lectures. He was the keynote speaker last fall at the Oklahoma Mental Health Association's conference here in town. So I was thrilled and discouraged to hear him speak. So he talks about these backhanded compliments that he encounters when people remark how well he speaks English. <laughs> These soft bigotry compliments have hidden, or really not so hidden, messages of you don't look like a typical American male. You surprise me by how smart you sound. I assumed you didn't belong here. So, in Dr. Sue's academic world of research, social science, and psychology, the term for soft bigotry is microaggression. These are brief, really brief, commonplace, daily, verbal, behavioral, and environmental indignities. They're sometimes intentional, mostly unintentional. What they do is communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative racial, gender, social, or sexual orientation, and religious slights. Think about what it means when we say, this is a Christian country. Who does that cut out? <coughs> Actually, it's a pretty wide piece of the pie. And they insult a target group or person. So that yellow handout that's in your order of service has a page of examples of racial 
microaggressions. They come from Dr. Sue's published research, and there are colleagues who've expanded it to encompass gender and sexual orientation, ability, age. I'm aware of the age microaggressions I'm tripping over here regularly. They come up wherever there is a long-standing, abusive, cultural power difference. That's where you can find microaggressions. So being fully honest with myself, when I look at that list, I can see myself thinking and acting at one time or another in each one of those, and not just race, but in every possible human category. I have tripped, stumbled, blah, 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 said incredibly stupid things. Which is why we're talking about it today. So it's not secret. So it's not something that... Shame is important, but guilt that keeps us from talking about it is destructive. So you heard, of my, you heard other microaggression examples in both of today's readings. The poetic version that Yadni did so beautifully from Maya Angelou. It's a painful catalog of all the macro and microaggressions which beat her down, but still she rises. And then the three different scenarios that Anita, or, um, Janet and Anne read, those are actual words from subjects in Dr. Sue's research, the black science student who ultimately changes her major to avoid questioning and ridicule, implying she's not smart enough, the female office worker whose boss can't remember her name and objectifies her body, and the lesbian who's forced to hide her true self. So how many of you have experienced soft bigotry or microaggressions in your lifetime? Someone has said something to you. Raise your hand if you can think of a time someone unintentionally or intentionally slighted you, passed you over, stereotyped you. I actually suspect it's 100% of us. It's just, it's just what it means to be human in a collection of fellow humans. We make judgments, we make generalizations. So this is both the good and the bad news, that we've all experienced them. We know how it feels. Holding on to that feeling, becoming aware of it is a helpful source for compassion and understanding. The bad news is that microaggressions are everywhere and why we're talking about them today, because they're wily and hard to catch or notice. They're embedded deeply in our history and our culture. Minorities experience <coughs> microaggressions repeatedly throughout their lives. They live with soft bigotry in classrooms, banks, shopping, eating out, driving, reading, playing, everywhere. It's exhausting, draining, impossible to ignore. And research bears out that they become emotionally crippling, these thousand cuts. They're both ambiguous and confusing. They're disorienting. So Dr. Sue tells the story of getting onto a small commuter plane with a black colleague. So they're the first to board. They choose 
two seats across from each other on the aisle near the front of the plane so that they can carry on their conversation that they're in the middle of and get off easily and put their bags up above them. And as the plane begins to fill, when three white males in suits board, the flight attendant asks Dr. Sue and his friend to move to the back of the plane to balance the weight distribution. Dr. Sue and his friend make eye contact. A reality check. Is this really happening? They decide not to protest and move to the back of the plane. Dr. Sue describes what was going through his mind in that briefest of moments. Both of us, passengers of color, had similar negative reactions. First, balancing the weight of the plane seemed reasonable, but why were we being singled out? After all, we had boarded first, and the three white men were the last passengers to arrive. Why weren't they asked to move? Were we being singled out? Was this just a random event with no racial overtones? Were we being oversensitive and petty? If you've been on the receiving end of countless microaggressions, this jumble of questions and feelings surface again and again, and it's this juggling of conflicting, disorienting, exhausting thoughts that you have to sort through. Do I speak? What, uh, what does this mean? Dr. Sue did decide to voice his experience. Now I'm quoting from him. Although we complied by moving to the back of the plane, both of us felt resentment, irritation, and anger. In light of our everyday racial experience, we came to the same conclusion the flight attendant had treated us as second-class citizens because of our race. But this incident didn't end there. While I kept telling myself to drop the matter, I could feel my blood pressure rising, my heart beating faster, and my face flushing with anger. <coughs> when the attendant walked back to make sure our seat belts were fastened, I could contain my anger no longer. Struggling to control myself, I said to her in a forced, calm voice, did you know you asked two passengers of color to step to the rear of the bus? For a few seconds she said nothing, but looked at me with a horrified expression. Then she said in a righteously indignant tone, well, I've never been accused of that. How dare you? I don't see color. I only asked you to balance the plane. Anyway, I was only trying to give you more space <coughs> and greater privacy. Attempts to explain my perceptions and feelings only generated greater defensiveness from her. For every allegation I made, she seemed to have a rational reason for her actions. Finally, she broke off the conversation and refused to talk about the incident any longer. Were it not for my colleague who validated my experiential reality. I would have left the encounter wondering whether I was correct in my perceptions. Nevertheless, for the rest of the flight, I stood over the incident and it left a sour taste in my mouth. Those groups who have power, control of economics, history, communications, education, and politics can fail to see or unwittingly continue to impose microaggressions. 
most of us, most white people experience themselves as good, moral, decent human beings who would never intentionally discriminate against others on the basis of race or gender or size <coughs> or culture. But, <laughs> but, psychosocial research reveals it's difficult for anyone, anyone born and raised in the United States to be in, immune from inheriting racial, gender, and cultural biases. Over and over again, inherent unconscious biases are part of being a citizen. If you doubt me, there's a lovely online um, test you can take that Harvard has put together. Oh, and this isn't in my sermon, so I'll have to think of what it's called. Um, implicit bias test. Just Google <coughs> implicit bias. And it's this instant, you have to make instant decisions, subconscious decisions. And it used to just be about race, but now you can pick any old, uh, any old oppression for you. And, um, and it's surprising. Because, yes, we are moral, upright people and... For many groups, soft bigotry is endless from the moment they wake up until they go to bed. In their dreams, even. It starts when ba with babies and lasts through deaths. It's endless, oppressive, accumulative, and destructive to a person's psyche, to the whole group's self-determination. And if you doubt the veracity of pain and distortion caused by repeated microaggressions over time, again... Think about just that one harm done to you that you could recall. And then multiply it by 10,000. You know, I, I've never had much use for the Christian concept of original sin. Until I think about what it means to be raised surrounded by overlapping social and cultural systems that elevate some people and denigrate others. The research of prejudice and microaggression bears out that there can be a subconscious disconnect between what we know, we know we're not bigots, we know not to be bigots and not to judge others, and what our subconscious awash in endless, lifelong cultural messages has learned. We're born, this is original sin. We're born into these learned messages. And so soft bigotry arises out of these unseen recesses. I'm certain, I'm certain each of you, myself included, are getting those familiar feelings of horror, you know, that fear, that disbelief. I don't want to be this person, not me. Let me tune this out. Can I just dismiss this whole sermon? And this sermon was hard to write because of that internal debate that sounds a lot like the flight attendant. What? I'm above all this. Wait, no, I'm not bigoted. I can see the, re the response in the face of others. I have seen that response in the face of others when I speak without thinking 
or act without thinking or don't fully look around. The, the flight attendant and my responses are common white Eurocentric ones. When racism, sexism, or heterosexism is pushed into our consciousness, we're likely to experience that whole mix of strong, powerful, disruptive, I can't deal with this. I think I'll just withdraw. This is hard. <laughs> Charles and Anne picked a sensitive, tender, and explosive topic. We, I, want to deny, avoid, get angry, feel guilty when I see these situations. And each one of these reactions is natural. It's only if we stop there, when we dwell in those turning it back on ourselves. Oh, guilt, shame. Because that keeps you from looking at the underlying history and pathology and really seeing the person in front of you and the history they bring and accepting, wait a minute, my reality actually may be very different from this person's. So my getting caught up in my guilt and shame and denial and avoidance is really a way to turn away from this microaggression reality. It, it blocks my ability to notice and reflect and change. So our job is not only to see the harm that soft bigotry causes in the other. Our job is to begin to see the cost for ourselves, for not investing in knowing our own biases better. Our work is to come to know how intense responses are roadblocks to self-exploration. We have to deconstruct them so we can see more clearly. We have to learn history. We have to become willing to see ourselves in interactions fully, as Charles would put it, so that we are no longer surprised by the harm or ignorance that are soft bigotry. This is that moral and spiritual cost to continue to degrade and harm this cruelty diminishes our humanity as well as everyone else around us. People who oppress at some level become callous and cold. Soft bigotry is insidious because we minimize the harm. Oh, that was just a quick... I, I, that question really didn't hurt you. I was only kidding. <laughs> I meant that as a compliment. It just flies by so quick. We have an ethical mandate and a way forward. That's also on your yellow sheet. Because what, what these microaggressions reflect is a worldview that involves in superiority and inferiority. They're subtle, but they're so harmful over and over again. Because bigotry is such a despised concept in our society, the actions of others and our own often are protected by this silence and inaction. And it can seem like a Herculean task to make the invisible visible, to name this soft bigotry, to call out the microaggressions. That's exactly what we have to do. 
I know, soft bigotry isn't going to be resolved by a single sermon or a whole set of sermons. It's not solved by having a whole bunch of people who are different join us. That would help, but it won't solve it. Though it opens the possibilities for seeing the invisible, there are no simple answers. But what is clear is inaction is wallowing in this original sin. Inattention is deadly. Sue mentions soft bigotry is not found just in person-to-person, but environments. For example, who sits where? What is up on our walls? What group is present? What group is missing? Imagine walking through the doors of Hope Church and taking on a different persona and see what you notice. Would you feel safe? Really? Who might feel unsafe? Because they can already tell soft bigotry exists just by looking around. We have five white men there hanging on our walls. One white woman standing up here. Someone gave um, two ways I've pushed back, small but environmental, is I no longer, when we do our Christian holidays, when we do Christmas, I never show a white nativity scene because historically, Jesus, the wise men, they were So I don't know if you've noticed for the last couple of years. It's also why we don't have symbols on our walls. Symbols are deep and wide and can carry a lot of microaggression. A very lovely member donated this beautifully framed poster of a hundred famous Unitarian Universalists wanting us to hang it on the wall. And I said, nope. Thank you very much. You know, said, thank you, lovely. We'll take it. Thank you. So sweet. And then we put it in, uh, I can't remember if we put it in the garage sale or the auction, because every single one was white. Those stamps going down to Ari, what does that communicate to our children and teachers? Look at them. There are no simple answers, but we are charged to be woke, to be humble, to be open-hearted. Albert Einstein said, the world is too dangerous to live in. Not because of the people who do evil, because of the people who sit and let it happen. So as we continue from last week, getting to know each other in the name of love, Ask someone for their story of microaggression. May it open your eyes. May it be so.